Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. On this episode, I speak to Monique Carriol. Monique is the Director of Strategy and Transformation at Hounslow and Richmond Community Healthcare, which is an NHS trust, which essentially, as Monique describes it, provides the care that sits between the GP and the hospital. And that covers both adults and children's services. At the time of recording, we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, and we discuss testing and also the COVID-19 vaccine. We talk about how the pressure of the last nine months has impacted the staff at the Community Trust and also the impact it's had on the type of leadership that needs to be displayed and having the ability to accept a level of uncertainty. And finally, we discuss the future of the NHS and particularly collaborative models and how uh, Monique sees the future of health and social care being very much based around a neighbourhood model. So let's hear from Monique. Monique, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I wonder if I could start just by asking you to say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Monique Carriel. I'm currently the Director of Strategy and Transformation at Hounslow Richmond Community Healthcare. And we are an NHS healthcare provider. We provide um, the care that's in between the hospital and the GP, I think is the easiest way to explain it. Um, we cover a number of London boroughs and we have a turnover of about 77 million and we employ just over 1,200 staff. Um, I've been at, we call ourselves HRCH, I've been at HRCH for six and a half years now and I've been in the director role for just over four years. Excellent, thank you. And just so people really understand, I think it's a really good way to describe it as between the hospital and the GP. Could you just maybe give an example of what sort of yeah. care you offer? Yeah, definitely. So we provide, we like to call it, we say we are the glue. And why we explain it in that way is we provide district nursing services, health visiting services, prevention, so health and well-being services. Um, we also provide a specialist nursing um, physiotherapy and um, so that's why we say most people won't realize that they're going into a different organization so if you go into a health clinic normally where you may have GP practices but you'll also have community health services provided we would be that community health provider the care in your home so occupational therapists as well we provide some of that um, and we provide rapid response services. So people who come out to you in your home for urgent care as well, but also people who at the hospital when you're ready to come home um, can come and get you and bring you home. So we almost say the in-reach into the hospital to bring people home, the rapid response to hopefully keep you safe and well at home and not needing to go into the hospital. Great. No, that, that's very helpful. 
obviously this year has been a very different year with with COVID-19 and I know from conversations we've had that it's been really tough for you and Mm. the rest of the team. You've played a leadership role in this in this crisis and with all its complexities can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like or what that is still like I guess? Yeah yeah so First of all, I think I would say for our staff, you know, those our frontline staff and those supporting our frontline staff, it has been extremely challenging. But the way how they've risen to the call to action has been absolutely first class. And, you know, I think sometimes we forget, well, we don't deliberately forget, but sometimes we forget that when people are care professionals, they're still everyday people. They still have their families. They still have the same worries and concerns that we will have. And they still go out there and provide care to very vulnerable people. And I think a lot of them would would tell us stories of they've been the only people seeing some of these isolated and vulnerable families through the pandemic. So that challenge at the front end, I think, makes it ever more important that what me and my team do, which is the support functions, if you like, at the back end to get that right. I've been leading COVID recovery. So I've been one of the COVID lead recovery directors. And what that's been about is. When we went through the first wave, which came upon us, so it absolutely tested all of your systems and processes to the limit. But what obviously we had to do then was start to think about how we start to reintroduce services and how we're going to work with partners. We had to bring back services, but we also created new services during the pandemic that were needed. So how would we run those? How would we, that famous phrase, lessons learned, you know, how would we implement the lessons learned at at pace? And as you know, in the NHS, there's still been quite a big requirement about integration. And I think uh, the, the vision has been that the pandemic in the way people came together and delivered care very quickly, that we didn't want to lose that. And actually, so how do you blend all of that together? So my role has been about number making sure we've got the right systems and processes in place, that we can provide that assurance that all levels required But then also, how do we support our frontline staff accordingly through recovery? What do we need to have in place to do that? And then how do we keep that and align that with our strategy and our vision that we already had and what needs to change? So boiling all that down and making it as simple as possible. So can you give an example of what sort of thing you needed to change to enable staff to continue to do their work? So a big thing has been about face-to-face care, hasn't it, and the move to virtual And I think you look at it through one lens and people talk about the age of digital. It's great that we've got more digital health. It's been accelerated. But actually, you had to put that in literally overnight. So being able to support staff in how to use the tools, the patients being able to use them. As you know, not all patients are that's it's not suitable. Not all care can be delivered virtually. And we were using telephones. Things like video calls and stuff like that. Mixture. Okay. So when you hear virtual, a lot is, there has been a lot of telephone. We do have a, a digital platform where you can yeah. safely provide care. I think the other thing with providing healthcare also is your information governance requirement. So that's yeah. quite tricky. And as I said, we look after people who it's not suitable for them. So being able to provide care in a different way, yeah. being able to provide for people to be able to work from home and to get used to working from home. It's very different. We also know, as everybody, a number of people had their children at home with them as well. So although there was school available for key workers, for some people that wasn't viable and they had their children at home as well. So being able to support people to provide their, do their job at home was very tricky. 
Yeah. And what about your relationship with other partners? You know, you, mm. you mentioned being the glue between mm. hospitals and GPs. How has that relationship changed or how, the, the way that we've worked together? Yeah. So, so we're very lucky in um, we work in for those who are familiar with healthcare and healthcare policy. And you'll know about place based, And that's usually sort of a borough base. So we um, we are in two main boroughs at the moment and we've got really good, well-established, long-standing partnerships, which is great. A lot of trust, a lot of collaboration anyway. But there were still things that we hadn't cracked pre-pandemic. What we found is the pandemic and the relaxation of some of the policy, if you like, has allowed us to drive things at pace. So things like um, rehab, we had to expand and, and change rehab services. And we introduced yeah. discharge hubs at the hospital. So we run the discharge hub at the hospital um, and we work really closely with local authorities. So we already have um, joint rehab services rehab, um, with them and just being able to build on that and to be able to work together. So voluntary sector, mental health, local authority, our hospital partners, primary care. We have a, a strong partnership with primary care. Um, in Hounslow and really been able to build on that and been able to um, support each other and provide mutual aid as well. That's been a big yeah. part of the pandemic. People being able to share staff, share resources um, without the bureaucracy and still being able to do that safely. Yeah. And you mentioned the discharge hub there, just so mm. people understand what that means in a practical sense. Is that where your staff are on site in the hospital? Yeah. Yes. being being discharged, they're there to, to hold their hand almost immediately. So as you know, whenever the, um, whenever the NHS is under pressure, the pressure is very much felt in the hospital, isn't it? And we need to keep the system flowing so people can get into hospital when they need it and back out safely. And the discharge hub, there was a national mandate for discharge hubs to be set up, to be manned by community and to have different levels of people being discharged. And there were very strict time criteria as to when someone is safe to be discharged, how quickly they need to be discharged. So to do that, yes, we have a team. We have redeployed staff into that discharge hub to make it work. Um, and we look after the discharges for the, the hospital. So that means other boroughs where we may not be providing the community care, we are still responsible for coordinating that discharge. That's been challenging, but we've been commended really well on what we've done and how people have people have really come together to make it work. Yeah. And how, how have the staff been coping with everything? Because we all, you know, everybody was out on uh, you know, clapping the, the NHS yeah. and things. But I think very few people actually know really what it's like. Yeah. I think um, it would be great for you to speak to some frontline staff and really hear that firsthand. But what I would share is now we're well into wave two. People are tired. You know, people are really tired. Um, people are worried. They're still providing great care, but it is really taking it out of them. And I think the people were running on adrenaline in wave one, you know, and really stepped up to the cause and delivered. But you had a little bit of a lull over the summer, but we're into winter pressures as well now, aren't we? And uh, I think we could even call this a wave three. And I just think I'm really concerned for staff. It's really important, I think, that um, frontline staff are given psychological support and access to it if they need it. Um, and we've been, as an organisation, we've really prioritised and emphasised well-being. But actually, there's a, there's a challenge there because busy frontline staff with heavy caseloads it's very challenging for them to feel that they can free up time 
to yeah. look after their well-being. So even as managers, you may be saying that they feel that they can't do that. They're like, well, you're, but I've got this many on my caseload. So I think really, really tough. But their passion yeah. and their commitment hasn't wavered. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So obviously two key things that you'll have been focusing on your organization will be testing and now thankfully the rollout of the vaccine. Can can you tell me a little bit about testing first of all and how how that's worked? And particularly for your staff? Yes, so actually they have kits at home, they have kits that have been delivered to them at home and they can test themselves twice a week. If they receive a positive result on the test, they then follow up with the PCR. And again, those are turning around quite quickly as well, and there isn't an issue with capacity. So we welcome that. And for us, um, our staff have really taken that on board and they record their results online. That's a really slick system um, and we've got a really good process in place. But a lot of staff have welcomed that in terms of wanting to know. And obviously, if we do have any positives, we can react to that quickly um, and and to prevent any spread. So that's good because, as you know, Unfortunately, with COVID, a lot of it is it presents asymptomatically. So yeah. people don't know that they've got it. They're well. They don't know that they've got it. Yeah. Lateral flow testing. Is that a quicker mm-hmm. test or just for people who don't know? So that's something. Sorry. The easiest way to describe it, I'm not saying that's actually how the test, but it's like doing a pregnancy test at home where right. you wait and get a result. Yeah, right. and it gives you a reading as to whether your test has given you the right result or if it's inconclusive. So that's basically how it works. Got it, got it. Um, and what about what about the vaccine rollout? Now, I know that you're working on this mm-hmm. still and there's mm-hmm. probably a limited amount you can mm-hmm. say, but it'd be really interesting just to hear what the initial planning yeah, so has been like. Yeah, so I think as you as anyone would know, I think the, the, the government, again, has been keen to get the vaccine out as quickly as possible. Um, and to try and get it to the most vulnerable people in the community, also to try and get frontline staff vaccinated as well. Um, what is online already as we're recording this is about primary care. So primary care hubs have been set up and are running and they're running in our patches as well, which is great. And we've got I said, good relationships with primary care. So what primary care have been doing is to be able to, if there is vaccine left over, to be able to provide that and offer that to vulnerable NHS staff. So logistically, we've been working with them. So as and when they tell us, and it's very short notice, to be able to um, put forward our staff who are vulnerable, who have said they want to have the vaccine. Um, The hope is that, of course, in the new year, that, you know, most NHS staff will be vaccinated as soon as it's viable. Mm. But as you said, this is one where the question we ask internally, we have a vaccine group, you know, we're working and ready to go is to say, um, what do we know today? Because things are changing every day or twice a day. What is it we know today? What is it we need to work through today? And we've got some great people who are very calm under pressure, but can work and really build logistics quickly. And that's really helped us. But we're trying to uh, make sure we do um, communicate well with our staff, but also to be honest when we say things are changing. So it's not that we want to withhold information, but what we don't want to do is misinform anybody when at the moment people are sensitive to that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And this is my own thought now. I just I think people have been confused by some of the messaging that's come from the top government and yeah. uh, you know people just want to have some some consistency so i think yeah that point about 
communicating with staff and being as clear as you can be whilst not necessarily feeling the need to fill in the gaps if you don't know. I think so, you know what, it's such an important point because I think as leaders, sometimes people feel like they do have to know everything and then they get stressed themselves. And I think that's a really important point about personally, I think it is okay to say it is unclear at this point or yeah. we don't know. I yeah. think that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So just more generally, I know that you're a very keen student of leadership. Um, what, what, what is this experience uh, over the past, what is it, nine months now, ten months, taught you about leadership? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think, it, you know what I would say, I think it's really easy. You know, sometimes you hear those gems, isn't it? You hear those lines like um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. You know, those kind of yeah. lines. You think, oh, it's so true. Yeah. But actually, you know what I would say? The last nine to ten months, has test. I've seen it testing some of those one liners to go. What's really true? The one thing that I would say really sticks in my head is about remaining calm because I think it has been so challenging and the one thing that I see um, people expect from their leader is to remain calm and it doesn't matter what level that leader is just someone who's remaining calm who's trying to work through the complexity who um, is being caring you know just recognising where that person's standing. I think just some of those core leadership values I've really seen and the call to action. You know, the people who've stepped up in all walks of life, to me, have really shown that leadership by leading by example. Someone who steps forward. OK, it's lovely to hear those stories on the news. It is. But actually, they're also about leading by example and they've encouraged other people to do the same. And I think that's been very powerful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think we, we could... Well, we should hopefully see an emergence of leadership that is about that calmness and care rather than necessarily having to have all the answers all the time or, or having the answers yourself all of the time, which I think a lot of leaders feel, as we touched on earlier, that they have to have. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and I think that... Um You're a better leader if you play to your strengths and if you are um, authentic is another word that comes with it. But if you're real, I'd use the word if you're real. And that's, I suppose what we're saying, I just want to clarify, I'm not saying it's okay to be a leader and you don't know anything because that is not true. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to step up to the plate. You have to and take that responsibility. But I think it's just as important to be able to call it. Yeah. Say, we don't know now. Let's pause for a minute. This is what we need to do. And I think the leader, it's about building that roadmap because that's what yeah. people want as well. OK, what do we know and how do we build a roadmap to work through this? What are some of those points when we'll stop and take stock again? You know, those are some of the things that people are looking for as leaders as well. And for leaders to be visible. Yeah. I think it doesn't matter that we're virtual. Find a way to be visible and for your your staff or your teams to feel that they can feel you. I think that's really important as well. Yeah. So in public services and in the public sector and in politics and in government, um, it's really difficult to have uncertainty or it's mm-hmm. been really difficult. I mean, so certainly the, the work that I've done over the years with councils and NHS trusts and, and government, it's been preferable to have a firm statement than 
to say we don't know or I don't know. Do you think that's a culture thing that that this pandemic could change? Uh, So I think we live in a society where people want to know they need. Maybe we put maybe we put certainty with safety. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot now about people feeling psychologically safe. And yeah. make, and, and I think that um, there's something about trust. Because yeah. if you trust somebody, if they're telling you, look, I don't know this now, but what I'm going to do is this, this and this. I think that people can connect with that. I think people do accept that. I think trust is really important. And I think underpinning some of what's going on and how people feel I think there's a lack of trust. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure that it's this, it's, it's this, uns- the uncertainty is uncomfortable. Of course it is. But I think it's a lack of trust. Yeah. I think that, that what you've said there, I think it is really reflected in some of the other conversations I've had. So speaking to council directors of children's services, there's not much space for risk or mm. uncertainty mm. there. Mm-hmm. And they're saying the same thing that actually quite a lot of the times now they just don't know and actually mm. nobody knew what they they were dealing with and they're they're just dealing with it on a day-to-day basis and reacting to what happens which it, it, in that example for children's social care is really uncomfortable for yeah. for a lot of the staff and a lot of the council staff so yeah no, it was really good to get your your thoughts on that thank you um if we can move on to what healthcare models might look like in, mm. in the future so mm. What are your views on this? Because I think uh, as a result of the pandemic, but then also some of the commissioning changes that were already going on, what do you think future healthcare models could and should look like? Yeah, I don't think it's any different to what we had before in terms of models. Because if, um, so obviously I mentioned at the beginning, part of my job is I've got the strategy portfolio. So I'm always looking ahead. And I did some work just before the pandemic and maybe at the end of quarter one. So sort of coming to the end of wave one. Yeah. And I don't think what's coming out now and what the future is, is different. I think I've been in, in the NHS for nearly 20 years. And although it has different names sometimes in what it's called, if we call it the neighbourhood model, because yeah. I think, that, yeah, the neighbourhood model's been there for a long time, hasn't it? And I think now we're talking about primary care networks in health. But the yeah. concept of um, having joint health and care provision, you know, yeah. from statutory through to voluntary sector, through to volunteers as well. I think individual volunteers. I think having that on a neighbourhood level, knowing your neighbourhood, knowing who's most vulnerable in your neighbourhood, thinking family, and then how you wrap care around them. Mm. I don't think that's changed. I think what we're hearing now is that there's there's likely to be more legislation, legislation and frameworks and commissioning frameworks that help to align with that so that the commissioning fits with that vision and the commissioning allows health and social care to come together more. And I don't think that's necessarily about mergers. It's not it's not that. I think collaboration is the right word. You know, we're hearing provider collaboration. And yes. I think that's right. It's giving people a license to be able to really bring that together. I know I know you've been involved in um, areas in the country where they have done that, even when there hasn't yeah. been legislation and frameworks to support them they found a way to do it but I think that is still the journey I think it's just that hopefully 
some of the direction helps to bring it together. And some of the good things that the good things that came out of COVID show how it can work together more seamlessly. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's been talked about for a long time, but do you think it will actually happen properly this time? That, I that think it has neighborhood to. model. Yeah, I think it has to. I think you know. One of the horrible things about COVID is um, it has a, a caused um, so much damage, you know, to local communities and the economy. And the economy. Um, like I said, I live and work in the borough of Hounslow. It's one of the most affected boroughs from COVID because of the number of people who work at Heathrow. Um, yeah. We have massive health inequalities. You know, and we're not the only borough. Um, so I think that actually to be able to address health inequalities, to be able to support economic recovery, we must come together as communities and the big um, providers, you know, we're a big employer in our borough as well. We must partner. You have to because we won't if you don't collaborate, we will not crack this. So yeah. to me, it has to happen. And it starts, as you said, with commissioning, because if a commissioner says we are commissioning this as as an end-to-end neighbourhood service, then people have to partner. They have to, to collaborate. But we also have to support our commissioner with design. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, we know that there are places, and we've done a lot of work where um, the, the commissioning framework hasn't necessarily changed yet, but the commissioner is supportive of what we're trying to do. And I think that we have to support the commissioner because uh, it doesn't mean that the commissioner knows it all, you know, and it really is about co-design. Um, yeah. A term that's bandied about a lot, but actually, if you're going to get it right, it's a trusted approach and people feel part of it. Then it's got to be co-design. I'm really in my it's really been on my mind, Andrew, about collaboration and community yeah. um, and just really trying to focus on that and really moving away from competition, um, fear, those things that put the barriers up. I've been trying to boil it down. Yes. about what has what you know lessons learned if I say it this way lessons learned is quite a process right yes. um and it's great you get I've got I don't know 50 slides what tell me what the lessons learned were in my organization during wave one great okay that's fine actually I want to know what made people feel different because yeah. I think it's about what was it that made you feel you could do something different you could work in a different way and I think that that's where I think I'm going to find those gems of what really, why did people feel they were able to collaborate or work in a different way and make things happen overnight? I think it's in that. What made people feel different? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think just another point that you made there, which is important, is that actually a lot of providers around the country are getting on the front foot and taking control of their own destiny and actually not waiting for commissioners to to issue a new type of of tender or contract they're saying right let's let's work with you commissioner to 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 work it out ourselves and kind of work with you and i think that's that that's really important and a, a lot of the best organizations around the country are at this stage well into that journey as as in yeah. you are yeah. um, as a final question then what what bit of advice would you give to somebody working in the public sector or a charity or a social enterprise who who wants to to make a real impact so I would say, number one, be yourself. You know, um, we, value, we should be valuing everyone's voice. There's so much out there now about um, inclusion. And I say be yourself regardless of your background, your gender, your race, your age. Be yourself. You're bringing something to the table and we need to shake it up. 
Yeah. You know, back yourself because if you want to be in the mix and you want to get involved, get involved. You know, ask to be involved. Um, ask the questions. Reach out. You know, if a, a leader or an executive in your organization says, I'm always available, come and talk to me, go and talk to them, honestly. You know, back yourself to do it. Be brave. Yeah. And make it happen. I think in um in public sector, it can be very bureaucratic, you know, and it's really easy to just kind of wait for the policy or or like we were saying, we don't always know. There's stuff that's within our gift. You yeah. know, there's stuff that we do have the autonomy to work through or to do differently. There's all even if it's just you as an individual, there's always something you can influence, whether it's how you work, whether it's how your team works, whether it's how your organization works. And I just think make it happen. You know, we've got to make it happen. We need to be dynamic. I think this is the age of that. And um, there's a term that's used now, isn't it, about intrapreneurs. And I think that's trying to say, you know, people who have got that energy, that different way of thinking, but they're in statutory organizations. That's okay. Yeah. And I hope we embrace that more. Great. Monique, thank you so much for your time. I know it's a really busy time for you and I appreciate you taking the time to do this because I know that you know it's important to share learning and to keep communicating. So many thanks. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating and very timely interview and it was great to hear about how an organisation like Monique's is playing its part in terms of testing and vaccine rollout, but also the impact that this crisis is having on on staff and how people are exhausted at this point. I think so. some of the key insights that Monique had were around leadership and around the importance of remaining calm as a leader, and also the importance of not trying to fill in the gaps if you don't know the answer to things, because staff are human beings and they're clever and they will see through that. So I think her thoughts and advice on being okay with uncertainty and being straight about that with your team is really, really important. Monique also talked about a neighborhood model for health and social care. And as she pointed out, this is not a new thing, but with the pandemic and the rapid progress, which has been made in terms of collaboration between councils and NHS trusts, and GPs and, and other public service providers, maybe this time we can make real, genuine and lasting progress on that front. And finally, Monique's last piece of advice is to be yourself and to be authentic and to back yourself. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And remember that you can catch up on the previous episodes via the Radical dashreformers.com website and also remember to register and follow us on twitter and linkedin to never miss a future episode 